Spirit of the living God, we ask Thee, as Thou dost indwell each of Thy children, Spirit of God, our teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. Open our eyes that we might see and behold wondrous things out of Thy law. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention this evening to the fourth verse of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. And I want you to pay close attention to the first half of this verse. But God, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy. God is described here as being rich, as being wealthy. When you think of somebody who has great wealth, they may own houses and lands, they may have animals, they may have servants, they have money in the bank, maybe things in their household or on their throne if they're a king, made of gold or silver or whatever the case might be. They are rich. But God here is described not as being rich here in temporal things, but as being rich in mercy, being abundant in mercy, being plenteous in mercy, having a treasure house of mercy, as if mercy fills his world, as if mercy is his treasure. He's rich in mercy. And this is exactly what the scriptures say and speak of throughout from the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, from the Old to the New Testaments. In Psalm 57, verse 10, we find, For thy mercy is great unto the heavens. His mercy is great even unto the heavens. Simply using a description there, saying that his mercy knows no bounds. It's as great as the heavens. In Psalm 86 and verse 5, we read, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee so that he is said to be plenteous in mercy. He doesn't simply have mercy. He has mercy in abundance. He's abounding. He's plenteous. His mercy is great. He's rich in mercy. Psalm 136 describes God's mercy as enduring forever. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endureth forever. Verse 2, His mercy endureth forever. Verse 3, His mercy doeth, endureth forever. And so on and so forth throughout the psalm. The psalmist is saying, God's mercy not only knows no limits, God's mercy knows no end. It never ceases, it endures forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And this is specifically to his people. His mercy endures forever. And so this is the God who is rich in mercy. Well, what then is mercy? It begs the question, doesn't it? What is mercy? If the God we worship and serve is rich, plenteous in mercy, then what is mercy? Well, we've been thinking about the goodness of God 
and the goodness of God, really, underneath the umbrella of his goodness, are four distinct attributes. The love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the long-suffering of God. Those four things make up what we know as the goodness of God. Now, each of these are just simply distinct aspects of the goodness of God, as if the goodness of God is a diamond with four different sides. You can't consider the goodness of God without all of them. But you can isolate each one of them and look at them as they are distinct aspects of His goodness so that we can understand more particularly what we mean when we say that God is good. And so we thought about how He is good in the fact that, sense that He is a God of love the last time we discussed the attributes of God. And tonight we come to the mercy of God. Well, out of these four distinct attributes, the two that most often get confused are mercy and grace. And so we need to understand the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy can be described in this way. God's mercy is God's goodness extended to those who are in misery. God's mercy is his goodness extended to those that are in misery. It considers the objects as miserable. It involves pity. It involves compassion. It is looking at these objects, specifically man, as he bears the consequences of his sin. The consequences of his sin. Now that is distinct from grace. Grace is God's goodness extended to those who are guilty. It considers the objects as guilty. So mercy looks at the objects as simply miserable, suffering the consequences of sin. But grace is God's goodness extended to those who are guilty under the penalty under the guilt and condemnation of sin. And so that is the difference between mercy and grace. And so, yes, whenever you find mercy, you often find grace. Where you find grace, you find mercy. But we have to distinguish the two. So when it says God is rich in mercy, and then it speaks of his great love, and then later on it speaks of his grace, these are all speaking of his goodness revealed in salvation, but they're each distinct aspects of his goodness. And if we just let them all meld together in like one big idea, we'll miss the beauty of it. So he's merciful in salvation. He sees us in our miseries, move with compassion and pity. But then he is gracious in salvation. He sees us under the guilt and condemnation of sin and yet freely to an undeserving people pardons us and gives us the righteousness of Christ. He's also the God of love, and He loves us in salvation. He's freely set His love upon us. He has said, I will act for their good. I will send my Son to die for them, to save them. I want them. I delight in them. And His long-suffering is also involved in that as well. And so we see God's goodness in these four ways, but tonight we want to look at His mercy. And in order to look at His mercy, I think probably the best passage we can go to is Luke chapter 10. So, let's go to Luke chapter 10 and see how mercy is described. And then, once we really get a good grip on what mercy is, we're going to read that back into Ephesians 2 so that we can understand what it means that God is rich in mercy when he saved us. 
Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 37. <coughs> and he said, He that showeth, he that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Well, what is Luke chapter 10 dealing with? Well, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus makes clear in verse 37 that the Good Samaritan showed mercy on the Jew. Remember the man who was traveling and he was come upon by thieves and he was lying there on the road and he's dying and the Samaritan comes and he finds him and helps him. And Jesus says he showed him mercy. So we want to ask ourselves, what then is this parable teaching us about what mercy is? And there's four aspects of mercy that we can see in this parable. So we'll start with verse 30. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So here's this Jewish man. He fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So here's a man in a miserable condition. He's not considered guilty. He's not considered under condemnation. Remember how we defined it. He's under misery. He, excuse me, he's experiencing misery. He's in a miserable condition. He's half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The first aspect of mercy is this. It sees the misery people are in. This Samaritan saw him. He saw him. It, it's interesting to notice that verse 31 says, when he saw him, he passed by. Verse 32, he looked on him and passed by. They both looked at him, but they weren't moved in any way. The look of this Samaritan was not just he simply saw him and was able to move on. He saw him in his misery. He took a good, long look at him. He saw him as he's laying there in his blood, as he's laying there half dead. He saw him. You know, the more Christ-like we become, the more aware we become of the misery of our fellow men. To be apathetic towards people's misery, to be apathetic to their suffering, is not Christ-like. And so often, we can pass by and we don't want to look. And if we take a look, it's just a quick look and we go on our normal way. We're not much different from the priest or the Levite, are we? The first aspect is he saw this man, and then he had compassion on him. He was internally moved. That's the second aspect of mercy. He didn't just see him in his misery. He was in internally moved. He had compassion on him. And this word compassion is taken from the word um, for bowels. It's, it is the word for bowels, but it's figuratively used for pity or for sympathy, saying that this man was moved in the deepest part of his soul. You think if 
how when we talk about Philippians, we explain that even Paul uses the term, he's saying that I, I, I am sympathetic in the bowels of Christ. I'm deeply moved. I love you. I long for you in the bowels of Jesus, if I remember correctly. And he's using that word bowels. Well, that's the same word used to translate, we would translate the word compassion. He's saying, I feel it in the depth of my being. So much am I moved that physically, he's saying physically, my, my innards are moved. Have you ever been so, so moved at seeing someone suffering that you can actually feel your stomach turn into a knot? I was asked when I was in Greenville to make my first hospital visit. And my first hospital visit was to a lady and her son. Her son had cancer. He was 12 years old. He was dying. They were not believers. They didn't go to the church. I went by myself. When I walked in the room, this 12-year-old boy is wearing a diaper. His head's shaved. He's got massive scars on his head. He can barely he can barely make any noise. They're holding up something for him to vomit in. And I was sitting, standing in that room. Everything within me just twisted up. Just my whole insides felt like they were just twisted into a knot. As I'm looking at this, this young man is 12 years old and suffering and pain and misery. And this Samaritan, when he saw this this man, this Jew, laying on the side of the road, he was moved. He felt it. He was deeply affected with it. And the Bible says that Christ was deeply moved. In Matthew 14, verse 14, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. He couldn't just look at people in their sinful misery and pass on his way. He was deeply moved. When we look at people, do we see their misery first, but are we moved? What do we see? Do we not see a humanity suffering from the consequences of sin? Do we not look around our church? Do we not look around in the stores we go to and see people who are suffering from the consequences of the fall? Do we not see marriages that are nothing more than contracts? Where the wife wishes her husband would leave, but she has to stay married to him because she has no means of supporting herself, even though she gets beaten and he gets drunk and she hates it. Isn't it true? that people are addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs. They're living a miserable existence. Absolute misery. I remember talking to our sister here a while back about a lady who's, who's a Muslim and she was beaten by her husband over and over again. Think of the misery that she was in. People all over the world are suffering. They're broken. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They're in deep and real pain because of the consequences of sin. I mean, if you just went up and down the street here, you would find house after house after house in misery, in pain, in suffering, hurting because of the consequences of sin. And how ought we to, to react to that? Are we to look at that and say, well, I thank God that I'm not like other men are. 
Sounds to me like the Pharisee. Are we to say, well, if they would have made better decisions when they were younger, they wouldn't be in this position? No, we're to be moved with compassion like this Samaritan was, like Christ himself. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, this, we read a tremendous text about the compassion of Jesus. It says that he is a high priest that is touched, touched with the feeling of our infirmity. And that word touch there is the word for sympathy. Because he became a man, he was able to experience humanity in such a way that he can say, I am a high priest who is acutely touched with your infirmities. You understand that no man ever felt as Jesus. He was the perfect man. His emotions were heightened. Everything about him was more. He felt more. He felt sorrow more than any man. He felt suffering more, acutely so, because he was the perfect man, the God-man. And I've explained before that as far as temptation is concerned, his temptations were such that no person could even begin to imagine because he could be pressed with the full weight of the devil's temptation, of the devil's, of the devil's power, and he would never bend. And we are only barely, barely pushed on and we snap. And so as a man, he felt these things, he experienced these things when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see him weeping and sweating drops of blood. Why? He felt that situation more deeply than any human being. He felt, when he looked into that cup, he felt the ugliness. He knew the ugliness of sin more than anyone else. So that when he went to the cross, it was such a grief to him. It was so despicable to him, so repulsive to him, so vexing to his soul more than any human being could ever imagine because he was the spotless, sinless God-man. And that's why he's sweating drops of blood because he felt as the perfect man. And so he's touched with the feeling of our infirmity. So he's saying as a priest now, as the high priest, looking at my people, looking at the world, he's saying, I'm touched. I have compassion. I am moved. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to suffer deeply in body. I know what it's like to be forsaken. I know what it's like to be alienated. I understand. So Christ is sympathetic. So we see that he saw him. This is mercy. He, you see people in their misery. You're moved internally. But then you're moved externally. See what this man did. The Bible says in verse 34, and went to him. Mercy is never abstract. It's not just something in my mind, in my heart. I'm merciful. I care in my mind, in my heart. 
No, a merciful person will be moved to act externally, and they're going to do something about it. And so he went to him. He bound up his wounds. <coughs> he poured in oil and wine. He set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Isn't it amazing? This man who's a Samaritan goes to this, this bleeding, dying man, and he actually meets his knees, needs. He relieves him of his misery. And that's what mercy is. It doesn't just stop at saying, oh, I feel so bad for you. I feel in my soul. I understand what you're going through. Mercy doesn't stop there. Mercy says, and now I want to do something about that. I want to meet the need. I want to do away with the misery that you're involved in. And this is so ex much exactly like what Christ did, isn't it? When Jesus came to this earth, what did he do? He went around healing the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the dumb. Why? He was showing the tender mercy of God. He was showing the mercy of God. He looked at the leper and he was moved with their misery. He saw them in their pain as they were alienated from society, as their body was racked with pain, as they stunk. He saw them in the depression and their pain. And what did he do? He laid his hands on them. And he healed them. And he did that for many of the sick and many of the hurting. He healed them. He came to reverse the consequences of the fall, didn't he? He came as the curse reverser. And as he's going around Galilee and Jerusalem and he's laying hands on people, he is showing that he is the curse reverser. He reverses the effects of the fall. Leprosy, blindness, deafness, dumbness, all of that comes from the fall, comes from sin. And Jesus, as the curse reverser, is healing them, showing that he has the power to reverse the curse, that one day he will bring in a kingdom without any effects of the fall, without any curse at all. He will be the curse bearer. He will be the one who is the cursed one hanging on a tree. He will bear not only the guilt of sin, but the consequences of sin. Is healing in the atonement? Isaiah 53, with his stripes we are healed. By his death, he purchases not only our spiritual healing, but our entire healing, our entire healing as a person, as soul and body, so that one day we are whole completely. See, Christ did a ministry of mercy on this earth, and he went around healing and meeting the needs of these people that were in deep suffering. And finally, another thing we see about mercy here in Luke 10 is that mercy is extended to enemies. I mean, this guy was an enemy of the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. But he did this to an enemy. And somebody who's merciful doesn't pick and choose who they'll have mercy on. I'll have mercy on this nationality because these kind of people cause trouble. A merciful person, one who's like their savior, one who's like their God, is no respecter of persons, but will have mercy even on their enemies. You remember when the Lord Jesus said, he says, you are to bless those who persecute you, to do good to them that hate you. And then he co continues, 
You are to be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And so, this is what mercy is. It's why Jesus says, He that showed mercy on him. He showed mercy. So mercy is seeing people in their misery. It is being internally moved to help them. It is being externally moved to meet their needs. And it is to do so even to enemies. And so we want to read that back into Ephesians chapter 2. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Where we read that God is rich in mercy. And as we look at this passage, I see two things. Mankind's sinful misery and God's magnificent mercy. Mankind's sinful misery and God's magnificent mercy. So first, mankind's sinful misery. What is the misery that man is in? This Samaritan found a Jew who was bleeding. He was half dead. He was thrown on the side of the road by thieves. Well, what kind of misery is mankind in? Look at Ephesians 2 and verse 1. First, they're dead. The man in Luke 10 was half dead, but we are whole dead. And you hath he quickened who were dead, dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead, dead to God, dead to righteousness. What does it mean to be dead? Well, the idea of death in Scripture is separation. When we die, our soul separates from the body. And spiritually, when we died, we were separated from the life of God. We're separated from the Spirit of God. We're separated from God. And so in the garden, when man fell, he died spiritually because God withdrew himself from mankind. And without God, man spiraled into sin, depravity, and misery. And he's dead in his trespasses and sins. That means that he's a corpse laying there. He's a corpse. He's dead. His eyes are totally, not only blind, his eyes are totally broken. They don't even work. They're, they're not even alive. His eyes are just shut. They're, he's dead. He can't see the glory of God. He can't see anything lovely in Jesus. He's dead. His mind is dead. He's a corpse. He doesn't understand the way of salvation. He doesn't understand wisdom. He doesn't understand the weight of his sin. He doesn't understand the holiness of God. He's dead. His heart's dead. He has no affection for God. He has no affection for righteousness. He has no desire to follow Him. He has no desire to seek Him. In His arms and His legs, if you were to think of Him working righteousness, doing things that are right, He will never do anything good because He's dead to goodness. He's dead to God. You see, He's inanimate to God. He's inanimate to righteousness. He's a slave to sin and he's dead. He has no life in him. Life is animation. You ask somebody, what is it to be a living thing? A living thing is something that is able to move by its own volition. Able to move by its own volition. Um, This pulpit is not living. cannot move unless I move it. But we are alive because we can move at our own volition. We are animated. And man is dead, meaning that he is inanimate to God. He has no movement in the realm of righteousness. He has no movement towards God. He's dead. Totally dead. And then 
he's destitute. If you look at verses 2 and 3, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our manner of life is what that means, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. They're destitute. They're just absolutely hopeless and miserable. They're living according to the course of this world. See, they're not just a dead man who's bleeding and dead on the side of the road. It's more than that. They're actively, actively rebelling against God, doing that which he hates more than anything, gladly, freely fulfilling the lusts of their own flesh, doing whatever they desire to do. Greed fills their hearts. Lying fills their hearts. They're full of sin. You think of Romans chapter 1 and that list of the works of the flesh, of the works of sin. They're backbiters. They're haters of God. They're gossipers. They're liars. They're all these things. And this is the realm that they live in, the realm of sin, the realm of the flesh. Because they're dead to God, they're dead to righteousness. But they're alive. They're alive, oh, very much alive. But alive to what? They're alive to sin. They're alive to the lusts of the flesh. They're very alive. Oh, they're very alive. Their minds are alive to it. Their eyes are alive to it. Their hearts are beating for it. Their arms and their legs are working the lusts of the flesh. They're very alive and they're happy in many ways, to live that way. Although it is slowly killing them. It is slowly destroying them. They're destitute. They're helpless. See, they're more helpless than even the man because at least that man in Luke 10 didn't want to be there. But sinners have no desire to be alive. And so they're destitute and finally they're damned. By nature, the children of wrath. By nature. Not only by your deeds, but by your very nature, by the condition of your own heart. At the moment of birth, you're depraved. You're without any light, without any goodness, without any righteousness in you. No desire for God. And that's why even an infant is in need of the shed blood of Christ. And so, man by nature is a child of wrath. He's under the wrath of God. It abides on him. He will die. He will suffer the wrath of a holy God. He will go to hell. And this is the miserable condition. So do you see, man? Here he is. He's dead. He's destitute. And he's damned. He's headed for hell. And he loves his sin. And God looks on mankind and thankfully verse 4 says but God who is rich in mercy but God if God had no mercy man would be left in this miserable deplorable condition but God who is rich who is plenteous in mercy who is abundant in mercy is 
Now what? He's moved. He sees them, doesn't he? First, he sees them in their misery. He saw you in your misery, didn't he? He saw you as you were dead. He saw you as you were living in your sin. He saw you as you were blind to the gospel. He saw you that you would be headed for an eternal hell because you would find no satisfaction in anything but him. You'd be miserable for eternity. He saw that you were miserable and destitute and damned. And he was moved with compassion internally. His heart was broken for you. He was moved. He was moved for his people. He said, I cannot leave them. I can't leave them in that condition. And he was moved externally, wasn't he? He was moved to send his son to pluck them as a bram from the fire, to save them from their sin, to save them from wrath. But specifically in Ephesians 2 verse, verses 4 and 5, regeneration is, is that action which is his manifestation of his mercy. The external act of mercy is his regeneration. It says, when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And this is, it's amazing Paul would put this together with mercy because this is reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, there's a picture of Israel and this is a picture of spiritual Israel. And the Lord says in verse, verse 3, And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee. You see that? None I pitied thee. No one pitied you. Nobody. When you were in your sin, no I pitied you. To do any of these unto thee, to have compassion on thee. But thou wast cast out into the open field, to the loathing of thy person, and the day that thou wast born. You were loathed. Nobody wanted you. If anybody could see what you really are, in your sin. Anybody in their right mind, so to speak, outside of a merciful God. Any man in his selfishness and in his right mind would say, let them die. Let them die. They're here for what they've done. They deserve it. They're miserable. Let them die. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, so here's an infant lying in a field, polluted in its own blood, no eye pitying, out in the middle of nowhere, no one cares, no one pities this child. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Live. Be alive. And that's why Paul says he's rich in mercy and he's quickened us together with Christ. He's begotten us again. He's breathed life into us because he came and he saw us and he said, live, live, come to life. Open their blind eyes. Give them a mind to understand the weight of their sin. Give them a heart that beats 
in love for me. Wake them up from their death. Bring them to life. I have pitied them. I care about them. I move with compassion towards them. And he goes on to say, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field. Thou hast increased and waxing great. Art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned. Thine hair is grown when thou wast naked and bare. He's saying, I've clothed you. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee. Saith the Lord, and thou becamest mine. What a mercy. Then washed I thee with water. He washed us throughly. He washed away thy blood from thee. And didn't Christ wash our sin from us? You read in Luke 10 that the Samaritan washed the wounds of the Jew. And here the Lord washes this child from its blood. But isn't it true that the Lord washed us from our sin? It's as if we look back and think it's John 13 when Jesus got down on his knees and he, and he had that towel. And on his knees he washed the disciples' feet. He washed their feet dipping that towel in a basin. And as he's washing them, it's just a picture of how he washes them with his own blood. It's as if after he dies on Calvary with his wounds and with a basin of his own shed blood, he then dips the towel and he washes them from their head all the way down to their feet saying, I love you, you're mine. I've washed you from your sins in my own blood. He's washed us. And then he goes on and he says, I anointed thee with oil. And isn't that exactly what the man did in Luke 10? He anointed with oil that Jew. He anointed him. He anointed us with the oil of the Spirit. He, he made us to have a good scent about us. He took away the filth of our nature. He gave us a new nature. Yes, we still have indwelling sin, but he gave us now a delightful nature, a nature that loves God, a nature that runs after righteousness. And I clothed thee also with broided work. And didn't the Lord do that? He clothed us. He clothed us with a garment of, of righteousness. He shod us with badger skins. He girded thee about with fine linen. I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments. I put bracelets on thy hands and a chain on thy neck. I put a jewel on thy forehead, earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine own head. And isn't that what the Lord has done? It reminds us of Luke 10. It reminds us of Luke 15. When the prodigal comes home, he says, kill the fatted calf. Give him raiment. Put a ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. My son has come home. He once was lost and now he's found. Reinstate him as a son. Give him all the rights and privileges of his sonship. And so the Lord will one day in his mercy take away every consequence of the fall. Every consequence of sin. In his abundant mercy. He is rich in mercy. And so, what does this mean for us as we come to a close this evening? We think about the Lord Jesus' words in Luke 10, verse 37, when he said, He that showed mercy on him then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be a people marked by mercy. And as I've already mentioned, yes, we're to see the misery of this lost world and we're to be moved and we're to meet their needs. 
But I think specifically about mercy shown to those who have wronged us. You think of how the sinner has wronged God, and yet God has shown him such abundant mercy. Do you remember the parable of the wicked servant? Remember how he owed money to a man? And he came to that man and he said, please have mercy on me. I can't pay it. And so the man said, I will have mercy on you. You can go free. You're forgiven of your debts. And then that same man had a man that owed him money. But when that other man asked for mercy, he wouldn't give him mercy. He grabbed him by the throat and he said, you pay me every last bit. And what does that say about us? We were miserable. We were destitute. What about people who have wronged us? What mercy has God shown us? Will we not show mercy? And this gets very, very, very practical. When in your marriage, when your wife wrongs you, your husband wrongs you, instead of getting upset and being quick to anger, show mercy. Has not God been merciful to you? Has not God not dealt with you after your own sin? Hasn't he dealt with you in mercy? Can't we have a little bit more mercy in our hearts? And when people who, who get on our nerves, so to speak, can't we look at them and see them in their sin, understand the miserable situation that they're in? Maybe we live with somebody who's not saved. We live with somebody who's a sinner and we just, it is so hard to keep going. Why don't they see it? Why don't they understand it? Look at them and understand their misery. Be moved and broken for them, not frustrated. Feel their misery and do all that you can in prayer and words of grace and help to bring them to Christ, but have mercy, have mercy. Even people, you think of people that might be the most perverted sinners imaginable. What would, what would Jesus Christ do? He would look at them and he wouldn't, you look at him in Luke 15 as he ate with sinners. He wouldn't say, you're disgusting, get out of my sight. He had mercy. He said, I realize that you're miserable. I care. My heart is moved. And I want to see you brought to myself. I want to see you saved and changed. And that should be the way we are as a people, marked by mercy. Be a merciful people. So I leave you with the words of Jesus. Go and do thou likewise. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us to be a people who are merciful. Help us, Lord, not to be selfish, self-centered. Help us to, like our Savior, feel and be pitiful, compassionate towards the misery of others. 
Oh, Lord, bless thy people. Bless everyone as they go to their homes. May they know the blessing of the Lord Jesus. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.